This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning again. My name is Josh, uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, we are starting a new series today on the book of Nehemiah, and if you didn't pick one of these up uh, on the way in, there's some out in the foyer. These are some scripture journals uh, for you that we think will be helpful over the next uh, couple of months. Again, there's some out there you can grab at any time, but on the left-hand side, you'll see the text of the, the scripture itself. The whole book of Nehemiah is in here on the right-hand pages are some blank pages that you can use to take notes. You can use it to write down some applications, some things you'd like to do, perhaps, in response to some of the things that we're studying together. You can write down prayers um, that you have. You can uh, doodle during the boring parts of the sermons if you uh, would like. But um, these are our gift to you. And again, there are some, I think, still back out there in the foyer if you'd like to grab one at any point. Um, Some of you may have read or heard of an article uh, published this past week by Jonathan Haidt. It um, was published in The Atlantic, and it was titled, provocatively titled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. (laughs) And uh, I will tell you, it's a pretty grim read if you go through it. Haidt is a, a, a social psychologist professor at NYU, and there's all kinds of analysis in the article that I think it would make it worth your time to take a look at it at some point. But here's the gist. I'll just read to you one paragraph that gives you at least a little bit of overview or summary. Quote, social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. One, social capital, extensive social networks with high levels of trust. Two, strong institutions. And three, shared stories. And then this is what he says. Social media has weakened all three. He goes on to say in the article, social media has both magnified and weaponized the frivolous. It's chipped away at trust. It's created an addiction to outrage. It's intensified polarization. And we've seen huge spikes of depression and anxiety as a result. And now, whether you agree with him or not, it seems like most people sort of across the ideological spectrum are saying there's something to the phenomenon that he's pointing out here. But whether you agree with Haidt's analysis or not, it does seem like there's a prevailing notion that things are not going well, right? It feels like the walls are crumbling, right, of our society, of our public life. And not just society at large, not just public life, but families, schools, neighborhoods, churches. It feels like are being weakened. The ties that bind are fraying. And so the question then is, well, what do we do about it? And by the way, Jonathan Haidt predicts that it's going to get much worse before it gets better. So how's that for a downer to start things out uh, this morning? But what do you do? Run for the hills? Hunker down? Retreat? Let me just read to you the closing paragraph of the article. He says, what would it be like to live in Babel in the days after its destruction? We know it's a time of confusion and loss, but it's also a time to reflect, to listen, and build. And I think he's right. I think it is a time to build. It's a time 
to build, when we're all frayed apart as we have been, it's a time to build real flesh and blood relationships with our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates. It's a time to build neighborhoods and invest in them. It's a time to build families and nurture them. It's a time to build communities of friends and networks of support. It's a time to build schools and nonprofits and ministries and institutions that meet real needs and bring glory to God. And yes, it's a time to build churches. Now, not because it'll be easy, but because this is the way that God works. When things often seem the darkest, well, that's when resurrections come. It is Easter season, so I had to get resurrection in there somewhere. But it wasn't a stretch, right? Because uh, listen to what G.K. Chesterton wrote about a century ago. He said, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. We just finished a series on the book of Lamentations. You remember, the, if you've been around the last couple of months, you know the context of that book in the Old Testament was that Jerusalem had been destroyed, the people were suffering, everything that they knew in their life had been pulled apart, frayed, destroyed the temples and ruins, people carted off into exile. And the Bible commentator Derek Kidner says, it was a death to make way for a rebirth, which means... Nehemiah is an Easter story. Nehemiah is an Easter story. It's a story of rebirth, of renovation, of new life. Not of an individual, but of a community, of a city, of a people, of a nation. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few months as we study the book of Nehemiah together. And again, hopefully you got one of those journals. You can work through it with us. Take notes if you like. But this morning we're beginning just with chapter one, where you'd expect to begin a series on this. And in our text this morning, we see that Nehemiah sees the need to build, and we can glean from this chapter, we can learn from this passage three steps in how you get started when you see the need to build. Three steps, how to get started. Step one, care. Step two, pray. Step three, enlist. All right, so let's look at it that way this morning. Step one, care. Book opens, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, who is Nehemiah? He lives in Persia and talks there about Susa, which is a citadel, one of the principal cities in the Persian Empire. So think modern-day Iran today. Now, Nehemiah is not Persian. He's an Israelite, but he's never been to Israel. He's living in exile. He's a child of exiles. You see, Babylon had uh, the Babylonian Uh, empire had overrun Jerusalem and really the whole southern kingdom of Judah in the year 587 BC. That's what we were talking about in the book of Lamentations. But Babylon, about 50 years after that, met their match in the Persian empire, and the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And the Persian kings, it turns out, were, for the most part, a little bit nicer than the Babylonians were, and they begin to allow for some exiles to return to Jerusalem. And there are three waves of this return uh, recorded in the Bible. The first two happen in the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel, 
How's that for a name? Zerubbabel leads a group back, the first wave of folks going back, exiles returning, to start rebuilding the temple. That's their project, to start on the work of uh, rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. But then a 60-year gap goes by, and a second wave comes back, this time with Ezra. And he's go back, and his, his role is not so much to rebuild any physical structure, but to rebuild the, the spiritual architecture of the people. He begins to teach the Bible again, to remind them of God's word, God's law, God's promises. And then shortly after that, about 13 years, comes the story that we're looking at of Nehemiah, where we pick up, it's about 445 B.C. The 20th year, verse 1, that is the 20th year of the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes. You get down to verse 2 and 3, and this is where the action starts. Nehemiah gets some bad news. Right? This is news back from Jerusalem. Things are not going well. It says the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. New City has a, uh, Zach mentioned it earlier, but New City has a partnership and has for some years now with back-to-back ministries in Mazatlan, Mexico, and uh, orphan care ministry in many different sites, but particularly we've partnered with uh, Mazatlan. And We've been taking trips there for years, and uh, some of you going in a couple of months. I hope you can come out to the dessert auction uh, to help support that work after church today. But one of the first projects that we worked on there when the, we first went down to Mazatlan was we were starting to build a wall around a children's home run by the Salvation Army in, uh, in Mazatlan. And it was, it was really kind of a, a difficult project. It was acres and acres and acres of land that we were building this wall around, and we were just doing the first, like, 10 feet of this getting started, because we were digging through rock to pour the footers to this wall. And not only was it hard work, it also kind of felt a little strange to us, and, and I think the, the project supervisor picked up on that and, and, and explained to us. He says, you know, when, when, when we see a wall, what we think is, is oppressive. Right? When you see a wall, you think confining. When you see a wall, you probably just think ugly. But he said, you have to remember, every single one of these kids has had things taken from them. Every single one of these kids living in this children's home have been abused or attacked in some way. Even since they've been in the children's home, he told us the story of bandits who had come and while the kids were off at school, robbed all of the dorms that were there. And he said, when kids, uh, these kids see these walls, they don't think confinement. For them, it feels like protection. When they see this wall, it feels like safety. When they see this wall, it feels like security. When they see this wall, it feels like home. And in the ancient world, it was much the same. When there are no walls, it means you're vulnerable. It means you can't protect anything. It means there's no safety. And so this news comes to Nehemiah, and it's terrible news. The wall's broken down. But this is not a reference, actually, to the Babylonian invasion when the walls and the whole city were destroyed. That's old news. Everybody knows that uh, at this point. But in Ezra chapter 4, There was an attempt a number of years back to start rebuilding those walls. But some folks had reported this back to the Persian king, to Artaxerxes. They suggested or insinuated that this rebuilding effort was really just a prelude to a revolt. And so then the Persians crushed the effort. The king Artaxerxes sent troops and they destroyed the effort to rebuild the walls. And the work was stopped. And this is the sad news. 
that Nehemiah is hearing about now. So how does he react? Verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What does Nehemiah do first? He laments. Just what we've been talking about in the last couple of months. He wept, it says. He mourned. He fasted. The question is, then, for any reader of the Bible, is this descriptive or is this meant to be prescriptive? Right? Is it descriptive? Is it just telling us about something that happened so we'd have some historical knowledge of the narrative? Or is it prescriptive? Is this supposed to shape and form what we do in our life together? And short answer, it's prescriptive. And the reason I say that it's prescriptive is because we know that Jesus Christ also did this over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. He looks at the city of Jerusalem and says they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're defenseless, in other words. And he weeps. Jesus also, as he's teaching his disciples, forming this community, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And so my question for you is what do you do when you see walls crumbling down? Or to put it another way, have you ever encountered something that you know is not the way it's supposed to be? How did you react? What did you do? How did you handle it? And I ask this because very often, and this is true in Nehemiah's case, very often mourning is the spark for mission. Mourning is the thing that launches mission. It was this way for Lord Shaftesbury. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before, but it's been said that the English social reformer Lord Shaftesbury did more to improve the lives of working class men and women in England than any other person during the 19th century. And it all began with lamentation and mourning. One day as a boy, he came upon the burial procession of a poor man. It was a shoddy coffin, hastily made. The folks who were wheeling the casket were drunk, he said, not paying much attention. It was just a poor man who had died after all. At one point, they crashed the cart. The coffin slid off. The body spilled out onto the street. Everybody just laughed. Lord Shaftesbury didn't think it was funny. He was deeply sorrowful. And he said to himself, when I grow up, I'm going to use my life to see people are not treated this way. And so he became a champion for the poor. And he always pointed back to that moment of mourning as the beginning of his career as a social reformer. Mourning is often the spark for mission. Or let's be a little bit more contemporary. Let's go to the 20th century, Mother Teresa. Same thing for her. She said that when her moment was when she encountered a woman who was laying in a trash pile, in a junk heap, thrown away like refuse, This woman had bites all over her body from bugs, but also from rats. Mother Teresa gathered her up, took her to the hospital where they refused to treat her. Wrong cast, too low, lost case, not worth saving. And Mother Teresa said, that was the moment. That was the moment where I said, not on my watch, not anymore. I'm gonna lay my life down for the least of these mourning leads to mission. Or, let's think a little closer to home. Again, I mentioned back-to-back ministries earlier based here out of Cincinnati. But did you know that back-to-back began with weeping 
and lament. I asked Beth Guckenberger about this a few years ago to remind me of the story, and, and she retold it to me. But Beth and her husband, Todd, were on a spring break trip with crew in Albania. She said it was a great week, lots of evangelism, people giving their lives to Jesus, amazing to see. But then she says she realizes now, upon reflection, that somebody had made a mistake in their schedule, and so they were just scrambling to figure out, what do we do on this last day of the trip with all these college students? And so they visited an orphanage. It was the first time for Beth to ever interact with an orphan, ever to see the conditions. And that same day, she also saw a gypsy baby on the street, kept up all night so that he would sleep in the day in order to look more pitiful, to collect more money by the side of the road. And on the flight home to the States, when everybody was rightfully excited about all the good things that had happened on the trip, she said, all Todd and I could do was huddle on the back of the plane and relive over and over the day with the gypsy, gypsy baby and the orphanage. Morning led to mission. So what do you do when you see things that are not the way they're supposed to be? Nehemiah wept and fasted. He mourned and lamented. But that's not all he did. Step one is to care. Step two, pray. Nehemiah goes to the one person who can actually do something about this. Now, as we study this book together, you're going to see pretty quickly, Nehemiah is not exactly what you would call a contemplative, all right? He's not that kind of person. He's an action guy. He's a doer, and yet he knows, I need to go to the Lord. I need to go to the one true God, the only one who can really help. And prayer here is not a one-and-done thing for him. You see it in verse 4 where it says, I continued fasting and praying. Continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He keeps knocking on the door of heaven. right? Knocking on the gates of heaven, asking for God to respond. This is the first of nine recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah. And so let me ask you, where do you go when you're in need? All of us go somewhere, right? Even if we don't call it praying, all of us turn our hearts to something, turn our face to something, orient ourselves to something when we're desperate, when we're in need, when we're looking for help in some way or another. We reflexively turn to something for comfort. And again, in that sense, everybody prays. Everybody turns their hopes, their hearts, their face towards something. Where do you turn? Nehemiah turned to God. And how does he begin his prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven. Basically, right? Isn't that what he says in verse 5? O Lord, God of heaven. In other words, he begins his prayer with praise. He begins with adoration. He goes on, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The great and awesome God. Raymond Brown puts it this way. He says, the prayer of Nehemiah becomes an adoring octave of divine omnipotence. There's a phrase. Although Jerusalem's need has driven him into the presence of God, the city's problem is soon dwarfed by an enormous, awesome sense of God's majestic glory. Within moments, he is exalting a God who is sovereign, mighty, holy, loving, faithful, vocal, attentive, and merciful. 
great and awesome God. A God, he goes on to say, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In other words, he's saying, God, you're a God who keeps your word. You're a God who, when you say it, it's gold. When you say it, we can take it to the bank. When you say it, we know we can count on you, the God of steadfast love. But then Nehemiah starts to think about the other side of that covenant, right? You're the God who keeps your promises. We're sure about that, but what about us? The other side of the covenant. And this starts to send him into a season of confession in his prayer. Verses six and seven, he says, I confess the sins of my people, the people of Israel. We have sinned against you, God. We have broken the covenant. No sense trying to cover that over or argue that that's not the case. We have disobeyed your commands. He's corporately confessing the sins of the people. And then he gets personal. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So it's not just my ancestors. It's not just the church at large. It's not just my predecessors, but it's me too. I'm part of the problem. I've sinned. He goes from adoration to confession, reckoning with his sin. And then he knows at this point, he comes, he's gonna ask God for something in a minute, but he knows he's coming into this prayer empty-handed. That is, he's, he's got nothing to bargain with, right? He's not bargaining with God. He, he doesn't have anything to bring to the table in terms of merit here. He comes empty-handed. But Derek Kidner says he's empty-handed, but not uninvited. He's empty-handed, but not uninvited because the Lord is always more eager to receive us than we are to approach him. And this is where we get to thanksgiving. It might not be immediately obvious here, but Nehemiah is giving thanks as he's beginning to root his prayer into the promises of Scripture. He's going to make a request, as I said in a moment, but before he does that, he sinks himself deep down into the narrative, into the truth, into the promises of the scriptural account. In verses 8 to 10, he quotes from three different places in the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. He quotes from Deuteronomy 30 in verse 9. He quotes from Deuteronomy 9 in verse 10. And what he's saying in all of this, he says, you're a God who keeps your word. And you did, Lord, you did keep your word. Verse 8, you said that if we were disobedient, you would scatter us. And I'm proof of that. I'm a child of exile. I'm here in Persia. We have sinned. You warned us. And then you scattered us. You said you'd do it, and then you did it. But, verse 9, you also said, God, that you would gather us if we would return to you, and that you would bring back the outcasts. God, we're returning to you now. I'm returning to you now. And then in verse 10, he roots his story. In the story of the past, he strengthens his faith by remembering, Lord, you are the God of the Exodus. You redeemed your people from Egypt by your great power and by your strong hand. You can do it again. Please, do it again. And let me stop here for just a second. Just to encourage you, exhort you maybe is even a better way to say it to remember that prayer and scripture go together. Prayer and scripture go together. You see how the promises of scripture inform and shape Nehemiah's prayer? That should be true for all of us as well. Prayer and scripture are meant to work together. So don't just study the Bible, but study the Bible, but then stop and pray in response to the things that are happening. Use the words of the Bible as your prayers. 
And don't just go to the Lord in prayer. But use the Bible as a way of knowing what to pray, teaching you how to pray, giving you words to pray. Most of us tend toward one or the other, right? We're prayer people or we're study of the word people, but they're meant to go together. They do for Nehemiah. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then there's the ask, or sometimes called supplication. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I'm peeking ahead here a little bit so you know what's coming, right? Nehemiah is about to do something risky. That's what he says, give me success today. He's about to do something risky. He's about to go before the Persian king. And he's going to ask Artaxerxes to allow him, allow Nehemiah to lead an expedition back to Jerusalem to start the work of rebuilding the walls. Now, I say this is a risky thing because he's asking for the king essentially to give up his most trusted servant to go and do this project in another part of the world. He's giving up a member of his court, a member of his household. This is going to be an inconvenience for the king, and you might know kings don't like to be inconvenienced, right? But even more than that, it's risky because King Artaxerxes is the very one who gave the order to stop the rebuilding of those walls in Jerusalem, right? He feared a rebellion. And so now if Nehemiah is advocating for this, asking this, asking to go and even be a part of this, the question is, well, is he advocating a rebellion? Is he encouraging one? This could be dangerous for Nehemiah's life. And he knows this, so he prays. He needs guidance. He needs help. He's going to have this audience with the king. He doesn't want to go in and make the wrong request. He doesn't want to go in at the wrong time. He doesn't want to go in in the wrong way. And so he prays for God's guidance, God's help, God's favor. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You might have caught that there's an acronym there, right? ACTS, A-C-T-S. And it's a really helpful way to model your prayer life if you would like to employ it that way. But notice one other thing here. In this prayer, Nehemiah gets courage that he needs to do this next thing. It's not only that he's experiencing this prayer uh, as uh, a supplication and, and ask, but something happens in him as well. He says, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And all the commentators highlight this phrasing as very unusual. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. One commentator put it this way, the more Nehemiah reflected on his plan the more audacious it appeared until God fed a new thought into his fearful mind. The Persian king was only a man, nothing more. You see, that would be an unusual thing to say or to believe because in ancient Persia, kings were not just men. Kings were gods. Kings were divine. But Nehemiah comes to realize, I've already met with the only true God. I've already stood before God. I've been before the face of the living God. So now I can go before the face of this man. It's in prayer that Nehemiah gets the courage to do what's next. Step one, care. Step two, pray. 
Step three, enlist. Now that sounds like an army recruiter <laughs> thing, right? I don't know if we use that term as much anymore. It made me think this week, I was thinking about my dad when he enlisted in the Marines. He was uh, 17 years old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, no real idea of what he was getting himself into. In fact, this was evidenced by when he took his oath as he was enlisting in the Marines, he took his oath, he, uh, he just mouthed the words, thinking that if he just got there and decided he didn't like it, he'd be able to tell the drill sergeant, I didn't really say the oath, you know, I just mouthed the words. Turns out that's not how it works, right? He learned that pretty quickly at boot camp. Uh, enlists. It's one thing to see a need. It's another thing to try to meet a need. And this is one little line dropped in at the end. Jathneel read it to us at the end of chapter one. It's great storytelling, actually, because it foreshadows so much of what is to come in the next chapter. But at the very end of verse 11, right after the prayer, it's just this one little line. Now... I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, what is a cupbearer? Cupbearer is a, a wine taster. And some of you are thinking, ooh, how do I get that job? That sounds pretty good. It was a good job, right? It was a significant job. It was a high-profile job. The cupbearer to the king would taste all of the food and the drink that was served to the king and maybe to the rest of the royal family as well to make, to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, right? And so to be in this role, you had to always be with the king. Uh, you were traveling with the king. You were trusted by the king. You became a confidant to the king. And in some cultures, the cupbearer actually became a kind of prime minister carrying out the day-to-day -day business of the government. All this to say, Nehemiah had a, a pretty good gig. Nehemiah had a privileged place in society. Nehemiah had a great job, a good life. So to go back to Jerusalem for this little startup expedition that he's trying to do, this was a risk. This was a sacrifice. He was giving up a lot to move in this direction. Seven Rivers Church uh, in Florida is in our little family of churches. And it has a school associated with the church. And uh, Pastor Ray Cortez, a friend of mine, was, was telling this story about an exercise, a writing exercise they had at this school. Uh, I think they have these in a lot of schools. A second grader, they were doing their 100 days of school writing prompts, right? And uh, so for 100 days of school, they were supposed to write out what you would do when you were 100 years old. We can go to the next slide here. Uh, when I'm 100 years old, this is uh, little Emma Knight. Don't know her, but I'd like to know her. She wrote this. She said, when I'm 100 years old, uh, I will be tired of everything and everyone. Even in second grade, she knows life is hard, right? <laughs> so I will tell everyone that I'm going to Canada, but actually go to the Bahamas. <laughs> I'll live in a tiny hut. She doesn't want much. I'll live in a tiny hut with my tiny dog. I will order fish tacos when I'm hungry and live my best life with no crap. <laughs> I really want to introduce her to my son. I think I could really enjoy her as a daughter-in-law someday. Uh, Nehemiah is in the Bahamas, okay? And yet he stands before God and he says, you can send me back to the crap if that's what you want me to do. And we, as God's people, right, we need to be willing to move towards the crap, towards the hurt, towards the pain, towards the needs. And we need to be willing to do this 
Not primarily because that's what Nehemiah did, although it's a great example. We need to be willing to do this because that's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ was not the cupbearer to the king. He was the king. And he didn't live in Susa, but he lived in the kingdom of heaven. And he didn't just risk his life to go down to the broken walls of Jerusalem. He gave his life as he poured himself out to die on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of a broken world. Jesus moves toward the need. As we follow him, we will as well. Two of my very favorite theologians are Augustine and John Calvin. And they lived actually 1,200 years apart from each other. But it's interesting, they, they're, at least vocationally, they have very similar stories. Both of them were looking forward to a quiet career, a quiet life, study and books and writings. They were scholars, which is a very noble profession. They loved the quiet, though. They, 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 that, was, that were Bahamas, you know? But in both cases, the church called them up to serve. They said, we need you. People are like sheep without a shepherd. We need you. And so Augustine became a bishop in North Africa, pastoring not only one church with all of its problems and difficulties and struggles, but overseeing all kinds of churches throughout the Mediterranean world in North Africa. John Calvin became a pastor and eventually the leader of the entire city of Geneva. He didn't just pastor a church, but he coached all kinds of church planters. Not only that, he became a city planner, developing sewage systems so that the poor could have clean water. He developed uh, diaconal ministries, a whole web of mercy ministries throughout the city. He welcomed refugees from the persecution of the Reformation in other parts of Europe. And he was not always liked. They kicked him out at one point. He had to be thinking, right? He got kicked out. He had to be thinking, I didn't even want this job. And then they called him back and he came and served faithfully anyway. Moved toward the pain, toward the need. You know, my favorite example of this, though, was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German scholar, German theologian. And as things heat up in Germany in the lead up to World War II, he'd already been a, a leader in the confessing church, those who were standing against the Reich Church, the Nazi takeover of the state church in, in Germany. But he, right up leading up to World War II, he accepts a job in England. And while he's there, he gets a letter from the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. And uh, I won't read to you the whole letter, but Barth, in this letter, he accused Bonhoeffer of abandoning his post and wasting his, this is Barth's words now, his splendid theological armory while the house of the German church is on fire. And he chided him to return to Berlin by the next ship. It's an older guy giving the business to a younger guy. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Bonhoeffer responds. He does it. I don't know if it's the very next ship, but pretty soon. And he goes back to Germany and he leads an underground seminary to train faithful pastors who won't be part of the Nazification of the Reich Church. He joins the resistance and ultimately the plot against Hitler and he dies as a martyr at Flossenburg, giving his life for the glory of God and for the good of his neighbors. Nehemiah did not stay in Persia. Bonhoeffer did not stay in Germany. Jesus Christ did not stay in heaven. It's not enough to identify need, but there's gotta be an impulse to try and meet it somehow. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter five, and he, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
What needs do you see? Where is God calling you to help? What kind of sacrifices might you make? What kind of walls do you need to be a part of rebuilding? Step one, care. Step two, pray. Step three, enlist. Let's pray together now and we'll prepare to come to the Lord's Supper. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Um, Like Nehemiah, we want to root our own stories in this larger story and scripture that you tell us, particularly as we think about Jesus Christ and the way he pursued us, the way he gave his life for us, and therefore our lives now are not our own. And so, Lord, would you teach us through this series and even through this morning and even through this supper, the sacrament, um, the ways that you're sending us and want to send us into the world. We pray uh, this morning as we see things that, that are not as they're supposed to be, that you give us eyes to see, but also would you help us to, to ask you to come before your face, to ask how we can be helpful, how we can build, how we can be a part of making all things new. And so we ask you to meet us even at the supper this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.